Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan with All Songs Considered. Today, a gigantic box set featuring the music of Pink Floyd is released. All week long, we've been thinking Pink, talking with Joe Boyd about the early days of Pink Floyd, talking to Roger Waters about the future of his music and the music he loves. We've had memories on the site from me and my first Pink Floyd concert and one of the best shows I've been to in my entire life. And we've had memories from you, too. But today we want to talk with drummer Nick Mason about his years with Pink Floyd, especially those early years, which this box set is all about. It's called Pink Floyd Early Years, 1965 to 1972. Nick will also play DJ and pick music he loves that isn't the Floyd. I start by asking Nick Mason about his role in putting this mammoth 27-disc collection together. Probably my main role in this was um, the archiving of uh, video and and stills uh, because it was a project I started really quite a long time ago. To some extent, it's been a sort of curious journey because quite a lot of it is is work done by Lana Topham, who's worked with us on film over many years. But it's not only what have we got, but it's where other pieces of of, um, material are. And she's done a fantastic job of sort of trawling through people like Pathé in Paris and uh, Belgian news channels and so on, who were around at the time and took movie footage. Because it's a problem. Back in the day, we didn't all have an iPhone with a (laughs) a capacity to record sound and and video. Not only that, but a lot of the live cameras until... Oh, I mean, really, the 80s were almost incapable of doing any kind of low light, uh, and and certainly they were big and heavy and expensive, and it cost a lot of money. That's right. And, I, I mean, it's interesting if you've seen the Beatles' new film, I just Eight did Days a Week. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, I mean, it was great because at least the news channels were covering it. Um, but actually, in terms of other people covering stuff... It, it, it was very light, you know. It was it wasn't something that was uh, deemed worthy of <laughs> keeping for posterity. I'm thinking about the even less newsworthy days, uh, the formation days, and I'd love to talk about just the formation of the band. And then I'm going to ask you to play some music that you love. I may pick something before you though, and play something sure. from the early days. But the name of the band comes from much more folky roots, your uh, roots and love of music, and lots of the things you pick today, in fact, will be uh, jazzy and blues-based music. Mm-hmm. Y- you all didn't choose to make that music at all. No, we didn't, but we did listen to it. I mean, I, I think sometimes uh, one g- gets almost confused by the idea that uh, to be influenced by something, you've got to be able to play it, and that's certainly not the case at all. It's absolutely right. The 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 very name of the band is based on two old blues players, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. And, uh, obscure ones at that. I mean, uh, very most, obscure. Yeah. But, I mean, it's quite a well-known story, but basically we were actually called the tea set at the time uh, that we changed our name. and Because um, there was another tea set, I take there it. There was right? another tea set on the on stage at the time. <laughs> <laughs> the same place. Was that the, the UFO, the, the UFO? Uh, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It was somewhere lo- far less uh, salubrious. I think it was probably... A sort of um, RAF base in Northolt or something like that. Right. Unknown land. 
Remember that song coming together at all? Do you have? Yeah, I do, uh, more or less. I mean, we recorded it at a studio called Sound Techniques in Chelsea, uh, with an engineer called John Woods and um, uh, Joe Boyd producing. And the interesting thing is, I have to say, listening to it, you think, fifty years later, how high the standard of recording was in period. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we'd fifty years before that, it would have been a gentleman shouting into a, a megaphone right. attached to a wax disc or something. Yeah. But uh, fifty years later from there, I'm still thinking, actually, it's a really clean sound and it's well mixed and balanced and all the rest of it. And the actual formation, how, how did this song get presented? Do you remember to the band and and the subject matter? A, a man stealing basically <laughs> women's clothes from a from yeah. clothesline. Uh, this is well, 1960, was, what? 67. 67. But it's a, it's, it's a snapshot, really, of, of England at the time. And uh, Sid would have brought the song to a rehearsal and would probably have played it live a, a number of times, not quite to that arrangement. Pretty well, so that when we did go into the studio, it, it was pretty well formulated, both from length and uh, and the different parts. And as a drummer... Uh, it's easy when you think of you know the Chuck Berry school of music to figure out what your drumming is or or some of the stuff that was happening in the British as we think of it the British invasion very basic rock and roll beats uh, surf beats your drumming style is just not like anything else I can sort of think of at the time and, <laughs> where, That's what, what your, my doctor said <laughs> um. <laughs> let's let's talk about the love of music you have and maybe there's something in in things you picked. <laughs> that uh, point to where this all came from? Well, the answer is I've no idea, really, because uh, I don't think there was ever any sense of having to, f- or feeling that I had to try and play something different to what was played before. In fact, uh, probably the opposite. I wanted my drumming to sound alike to any of the bands that were prevalent at the time. No, I, I sort of listened to it and I think... I'm sort of conscious of the way that a studio can affect the sound. I mean, let alone the part, but the, the drums sound so sort of, in a way, muted and controlled. I mean, I think it works perfectly well, but it's it's interesting because it's so different from a, a, a live performance. One of the songs you picked was a uh, was a song by uh, Etta James, 
Uh, oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful blues song. The lyrics of the song uh, just slay me as one of the great uh, lyrics in blues. It's called The Blues Is My Business. We'll play it. Yeah. Uh, do you remember when you first heard uh, Etta James and this song? I can't remember when I first heard it, but it, it's, it's a bit like um, one of those lines, lyric lines, that you just, it absolutely hits you. It's a, it's a bit like the one about the future's so bright I've got to wear shades. <laughs> right. uh, you, you just think, yeah, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I love the feel of, of the whole piece, just always on one of my sort of playlists. Fader down here, but we'll put this up online because every word is great, and this is Etta James. Yeah. And as a kid, American blues music, uh, something you listen to, or is that something a little later? Yeah, uh, no, probably a bit later. I mean, as a kid, uh, actually, you know, I was there at the beginning of rock and roll, so my first record was Bill Haley and followed by Elvis Presley records and then discovering Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, Lonnie Donegan um, in there? Any Brits? Yeah, but less so. Okay. Uh, Skiffle never quite had the power of of uh, of rock music. Yeah. There's something about a washboard that just doesn't do it. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> as long as this doesn't go on the radio, we'll that, be no, fine. Oh, oh. oh no! <laughs> so the the uh, the picking up the drums and stuff. What? What might have inspired you to even uh, choose that as an instrument? Because that's always the, the one that's hardest. You need a, often need a basement or a van or a, you know. Well, yeah, absolutely. If I'd realized, if I'd thought harder, I'd have picked the flute. But um, <laughs> sadly, I'd, I'd, I think basically a friend of mine said we should start a rock band and I bought a guitar, he said. So I went, oh, well, well, I certainly don't want to play the bass. Shameful. <laughs> So that really left the drums, actually. What year uh, but, uh, are we talking? Oh, this would have been, uh, I guess, late uh, 50s. It was a band called the Hot Rods. It was truly terrible. I won't ask to play any or <laughs> any songs. I think, fortunately, that there are no, they've all been erased, any record. I'd like to play uh, another uh, hit. Hit there and not here. You know, it took a, it took a, a darn long time for uh, Pink Floyd to be uh, part of the world we think of we think of you all as such you know 250 million whatever records sold but it took a while to, to catch on and certainly when uh something like Siembly play came out it was sort of non-existent on most but some of the here's a few of the fm stations that were popping up right around the time fm was being born here in the united states late 60s 
Oh, so I'll play that. And then I want you to take me into a nightclub. I want you to tell me about times that you played this stuff live and who was your crowd and what was it like. And so maybe you can paint some pictures for us. But here comes see Emily play a remastered version from this crazy, wonderful collection coming out. <laughs> Misunderstands. She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow. There is no other day. Let's try it another way. You'll lose your mind and play. Free games I'm going to guess that this, uh, you know, four-minute whatever song, actually three-minute song, probably went on a little longer when, <laughs> when you played clubs, yeah? Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, all, all, uh, that was the way it worked in, for us in those days, that the songs on the album were the sort of the bones of the song, and live, most of them would be extended to at least double album length. And that club scene, you recall those days? Yeah, I mean... The venues were very different, you know, in the UK anyway. Uh, there were really, by the sort of, by 60, 68, I guess, there was a whole new world opening up of uh, student unions with the universities, mm -hmm. uh, which for us was the, the saviour, because before that we were either in London where we had our own crowd, and that was great, or out of London where we were sold as a band who'd had a hit record and been on television but playing this weird, freaky music that um, was really not what they wanted to hear at all. Huh. And what's sort of remarkable to look back on is how often the audience hated us, but we, we didn't give up. We somehow felt we were right and they were wrong. <laughs> the, the picture that Joe Boyd, your early producer, and yeah. uh, such a hero of uh, so much great music, paints is at, at least what he call, what's called the the UFO Club, UFO Club. Yeah, the UFO Club. Uh, yeah. Seems like it was a, a scene that went on, at, at least how he paints it, from late at night till early in the morning when the tube would open and a lot of uh, drugs being sold by the, what I would guess would be called the bouncers or the, the people that worked there. And do you recall any of those moments? And Certainly not. And My lawyer has told me not to remember a single moment of that. <laughs> no, it was, well, first of all, 
It, it wasn't quite like that. Okay. I, I mean, I'm sure there were drugs and I'm sure they were sold, but they would have been sold by, uh, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, as I think yeah. it's called in right. shopping these days. Mm -hmm. There weren't bouncers. We didn't have bouncers. No one in their right mind would have wanted to go into that club apart from people who liked freaky music and um, people with very long hair. It started late because it was underneath a, the a, a cinema and consequently, any loud music before 11 o'clock when the film finished would have destroyed the um, ah. the experience for the film goes. So it had to start after 11. And yes, it went on until the tubes opened the next morning. But it was a very, you know, it was absolutely that, the centre for that that whole new culture that was opening up of... Uh, of the late 60s with the weird music supplied either by us or by the soft machine or mm -hmm. a couple of other bands a light show that we would bring our own but other, if it, we weren't there someone else would bring the light show but there'd also be poetry readings and a bit of creative dance and all sorts of other things it was a, a sort of mixed media experience was the idea and uh Drugs, in terms of the, what the band was doing, was that influencing your music? Was that happening? No, not particularly. I mean, I think in the case of Sid, maybe, uh, almost certainly, yes. But I'm not sure how much it really, you know, when you look back on his writing, it's not really drug-fueled writing. It's actually part of a different um, English culture of songwriting of the period, you know. So the Scarecrow and Gnome and, and Bike and not a... To at all drug fueled songs and we certainly I think by the time we'd seen what was the way Sid was going I think uh, we thought um, a rum and black currant was more than sufficient <laughs> I'm going to play another one of your picks let's see um, some of the peers that were around in, in your day also inspired heavily by American blues music uh, Eric Clapton Steve Winwood. I got to see them as Blind Faith back in the day mm -hmm. um but uh, one of your picks is uh, Buddy Miles' tune, a, a song called Them Changes, uh, mm -hmm. that, they, that they do live. I want to play that, and you can tell me uh, what okay. it is that you love about this.
When I was a kid growing up, uh, my fascination as an American New York kid was uh, with British music, and it was so exotic to me. Do you think there's something about the love of American music by Brits is goes the same way? Uh, yeah, well, I think America has always been a huge influence, and uh, rock and roll was sort of born in America and always seen as the the promised land. You know, I, I'll never forget arriving in America on our first tour and just thinking, "We're we've arrived." <laughs> you know, this was this was the Holy Grail. This was where you needed to be. What year was that? That would have been '67. Did they hate you then too? <laughs> And uh, no, by no. then we were beginning to make friends, <laughs> but, but particularly in America because they didn't have any sort of preconceptions of us being a pop group. You know, we we actually kicked off in uh, Winterland with um, wow. Janice, uh, Janice and Big Brother and the Holding Company. With we were supporting them and um, who were we? H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Uh-huh. It made me think about, um, and I, I want to talk about the your love for them changes, but it made me think. This term, this psychedelic music term that's so tossed your way as, as, as a band, and was that even in your language? Is it something that you felt was weird and psychedelic when you're inside and playing this music, or did it feel like just the right music to be playing? Or, you know what I mean? Like, well, I think it, it's a slightly tricky one, this, because it was absolutely, we were sort of painted as being, a psych- we were advertised as being a psychedelic right. band. It was, uh, it was a hell of a good launch pad for us. But actually, in terms of being a psychedelic group, I think apart from Sid, uh, we weren't at all. In fact, we were relatively straight and um, ended up, uh, you know, the first year the psychedelic label could be applied to us. But I think after that, we ended up heading down a completely different track. And uh, But years later, are still seen as uh, as being part of that movement. And I certainly think we exploited that element of it, if you like. And the fact that we ran a light show and that the lights were, the theory was that this was sort of recreating a trip and so on. Mm-hmm. Um how but would you characterize think, the music then? If how would I carry? I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I, it was just <laughs> what we wanted to play at the time. I, I mean, I think most musicians are very unhappy categorizing their music and would, would always <laughs> try and fight that one off uh, <laughs> as hard as they can, really. And them changes uh, this anything uh, in particular? Well, you've... them change actually. It, it's a personal thing, really, because first of all, huge fan of Steve Winwood. I remember meeting him when we were a college band before we'd ever signed a a record contract or anything. And he was delightful. And uh, in the next year or two, when we ended up supporting Spencer Davis... um, Which he was the lead singer of in the early 60s. They were really sort of uh, easy to talk to, helpful, you know, everything you could want. And I've known Steve over the years. And funnily enough... We were at a birthday party in India and uh, put a, a, a sort of band together for one night to play. What year is this? And this track was one of the tracks we played. We had a bass player. We had Alex James from Blur. It was the best fun I've had for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's a sort of reminder of that as well. It's the fact that it's a great, I mean, it's a great drum track. It's a really yeah. just uh, push along credit to um, Buddy Miles, really. What year was this, India? Uh, uh, last year, oh, 20, 2015. Awesome. The one song that I, that you your name is attached to 
as a songwriter is on a, a record called Amagama, a two-record set. Let me play a little of it, uh, because <laughs> the, <laughs> when was the last time you heard this, by the way? Uh, about 40, 45 years ago. <laughs> good. It's not, I tend not to listen to anything we've done unless I, there's a really good reason to do so. Like relearning it or something, maybe? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Uh, there's three parts of the song. One, the opening is like a minute. It's a nice mel- Mellotron mel- medley melody uh, that plays. And then uh, then the seven-minute part with the, the strum opening. I'm going to play uh, just a little bit, and you can uh, see if you can remember going in the studio and what, the imp- what was the impetus behind uh, this piece. And here we go. Job memory time. any memory of doing this and where you were? Well, clearly I was on drugs. No, that's <laughs> not true. Um, no, I do remember. I, I think I was probably, I'd, by the sound of it, I was being heavily influenced by Stomi Yamashita, who was a Japanese percussion player. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really interested in this whole business of uh, what notes you could extract from sort of single note drums and so on. Um, I, I really enjoyed messing about with this, but I don't think it's a really sort of critical part of the Floyd canon and uh, any real indicator of where we were going to go in the future. As a listener, though, uh, and remembering buying this record when it, when it came out, uh, it was a real ear opener because it was very spacious. Uh, it wasn't melody based for the most part. Mm. Um, you might not think of it as an important part of the Floyd Cannon, but I think of it in terms of just understanding the possibilities of what music can do and be. Uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I'd certainly, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I listen to it, and I'd, I'm sort of, it re, re-engages me, I suppose. And, and I think, oh, yeah, I really should have spent more time, actually, messing around with those sorts of sounds. I found it interesting rather than just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> and these days making music, do you, uh, do you play a couple of times a yeah. month, every day? What's your... Uh, not every day, but I certainly play, and uh, given half a chance, I'll play on, uh, you know, I'll do recording with other people, that sort of thing. Is there anything, this is 27 discs, we have, you know, more, a little more than 27 minutes, uh, is there, uh, total, <laughs> so uh, is there anything that I, I spend time with 27 songs last night uh, to keep the number right uh, is there something that you would like to play uh, that you've gone back and heard since doing or something that you just think really people need to hear again or really um, then I'd, I'd probably uh, say uh, set the controls for the heart of the sun mm-hmm. from um, saucer mainly because I, I still think it's something that I'm still very fond of I like the drum part I, it it uh, was something that owes, uh, I have to give credit to Chico Hamilton playing mallets on a kit in a movie, Jazz on a Summer's Day, that was made years and years ago about the Newport Jazz Festival. Uh, but I saw that piece of movie and I just thought, this is fantastic. I saw you 
perform uh, this song, and I'll see if my memory serves me well enough here. Uh, you all did a show called Eclipse, a piece for assorted lunatics uh, here in America, and in particular a place called the Kennedy Center in 1972. Yeah. And I remember, uh, I'm going to just start this song, and, and it's not a long story, but here, here we go. A little mo- tone, mood setting here. And uh, both this song and then also in Careful for This Axe, Eugene, there were these climactic moments where I thought you were actually going to go up in flames because <laughs> there were, there were uh, pyrotechnics, right? Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, uh, it, I think uh, the Kennedy Center, it wasn't too bad, but we did it at uh, Cobo Hall in Detroit and bloody nearly blew the place apart. <laughs> we overfilled... Well, the pyro guys overfilled the uh, canisters. Oh, my God. And uh, we blew virtually every speaker of our um, PA system. Wow. And that PA system, at least the one at the Kennedy Center, was the first time I'd ever heard surround sound. They called oh, it surround quadraphonic. Sound, yeah. Then. It was yeah, absolutely. Sh- still to this day, the mo- one of the most remarkable concerts I ever <laughs> experienced. It just unfolded. We basically heard what was to become Dark Side of the Moon before it was Dark That's Side right. of the Moon. That's right. And, you know, so you're, you're sitting there listening to music made. And this is what you guys did for me as a kid growing up, uh, made music that had never been made before in ways that had never been made. And I, I just, I want to give you a big hug for that. And, 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 <laughs> oh, well, thank you. And, no, it's and, great. It's, it's great when people do say things like that. You think, oh, well, that's a good way to spend the last 50 years. <laughs> you did good. Thank you, Nick Mason. I really appreciate uh, your time today. Okay, no pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Nick Mason, drummer of Pink Floyd. The gigantic box set featuring Pink Floyd's early music is out now. You can hear conversations, other memories of Pink Floyd this week on our website or subscribe to our podcast. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. Thanks, everybody. It's all songs considered.
Thanks for listening to this podcast. Discover the rest of the NPR portfolio at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.